So obviously Canada was a key partner in World War I, World War II, Korea. They were in Afghanistan as well. So they've been a, a key security partner in most of the major challenges the U.S. has faced in the last hundred years. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, joined by the ever-fabulous Professor Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. Great to see you. Great to see you. And we have a mutual friend with us on Canusa Street. And not only is he a mutual friend, but he's a newly minted author. We're going to talk to Dan Rundy, the author of The American Imperative. He's talk He talks about something that is really important to both of us, which is soft power and diplomacy. And so I'm excited for this conversation and we'll get into it a little bit more, Chris. I'll tell you how Dan and I, I think, met on an airplane. I'm not sure, but there are lots of crazy stories to be told <laughs> and we'll get into them. But first, why don't you introduce our distinguished guest properly? Well, fantastic, Scotty, and I'm really excited. As some of the listeners know, I had a, a, a prior life at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Daniel Rundy is now Senior Vice President and William A. Schreier Chair in Global Analysis at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. He's also Director of the Project on Prosperity and Development, which really looks at innovative ways in which we can promote both around the world. He's also served as an acting director for the CSIS Americas program, where Canada is covered in the in the universe of CSIS, and focuses, I think, uniquely it, at CSIS on this idea of leadership and how American leadership matters. I want to give you a sense of just how influential he is. He was an architect of the BUILD Act, contributed to the reauthorization of U.S. Exim Bank in 2018. He was an ar architect of a program called Prosper Africa, which is a U.S. government initiative to deepen the United States commercial development in Africa. He's been a leading voice on the role and future of the World Bank Group and on U.S. leadership in the multilateral system. Now, before he came to CSIS, he held leadership roles at the U.S. Agency for International Development and the World Bank Group. And earlier in his career, Dan worked in commercial banking at Citibank in Argentina. And if you want to loan money in Argentina, you, you know you can take on some risks there. But he knows his way around. And he was also in investment banking in Alex Brown and Sons. Very influential, but now the reason we have him here is that he's the author of the book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power, which, and I will have to ask you this, Dan, just to clarify, is it Bombardier books or Bombardier books? Uh, That's very diplomatic. <laughs> On the one end of the other, exactly. I think it's Bombardier, but yes. But for your Canadian, French Canadians, you can go with Bomb Excellent. Gonna, Bombardier. Excellent. I think I think for Bombardier. <laughs> All day long, Bombardier, That's right. <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. So anyway, so look, so I, yeah, I've got this, I'm on the, you know, I've been really grateful for the reception the book has got. I really am happy with it. I've been, the book came out February the 7th. I've been at CSIS for 13 years. I've met wonderful people like you, Chris, and wonderful people like you, Scotty, in my time at CSIS. But I also had previous lives in Washington, one at the World Bank Group and one in the Bush administration at USAID. So the book is sort of 20 years of my work and life at in Washington, but also my I lived in Argentina for three years and worked for a commercial bank, as Chris said. 
And I also lived in Spain for a while. So I speak Spanish and I have an interest in Latin America and the Spanish speaking world. So based on your based on your bio, you really should be about 160 years old. So I, I don't know how you've crammed so much into just a couple of decades, my friend. Uh, but this is exciting. I can't wait to hear about this book. So, I, you know, I think I've been channeling my ADD and OCD for good. It's sort of how I've been using my time at, at, at CSIS. So this is, I'm, my goal is to do, you know, 100 books. Yeah. This is my 67th today. So thanks, Canusa Street, for having Okay, me. 67. We're lucky 67. I like it. 67. So I'm, yeah, so this is the, the book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. Frank Lund said you need to report, you need to repeat something seven times for people to remember it. So if I say it seven times, sorry to be so annoying. American imperative, American imperative, American imperative, American imperative. There we go. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. So right, exactly. So, so my thesis is we're in an age of great power competition. We're not in the post-Cold War world anymore. And to describe it as the post-post-Cold War world is too vague. Yeah. And so, and actually maybe you all have a view on this, Scotty and Chris, but some people have said, no, we're in a second Cold War. And I'd be curious, Scotty, what you think about this, but I, I think that's kind of an edgy term. So I've tried to eschew that term. I've said we're in an age of great power competition. And I think that if we're in an age of great power competition, that competition is going to play out in Latin America, Africa, the Pacific Island states, Central Asia, Ukraine, Moldova, Southeast Asia, like largely the developing world. So yeah. the, I don't know. What do you think about that term? Do, are we in a second cold? If I said second cold war, what's your reaction but, to that term? Well, so, I mean, I used to think I used to say we're in a cold war with China where the mutually assured destruction is is in the cybersphere. I think you're right. It's that's too simplistic and it's too it doesn't apply in the current era. That's something that people who came along in the 60s, 70s and 80s would say, but people who are around now don't even relate to that and it's not exactly right. So I agree with you, but let me let me ask you if if because I have to confess to our listeners that I haven't read The American Imperative, The American Imperative, The American Imperative book yet, but I promise I will, and we'll link it in the in the show notes. But if your hypothesis, Dan, is that it's great power competition, uh, assuming the U.S. is one of the great powers, who are the others? I mean, I would guess China, but are there others? It's China and Russia. And so they okay. sidekick Russia. So I'd say it's, it's China with sort of their sidekick Russia as sort of like what we're up against. And I'd say it's mm -hmm. largely, yeah. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but did you, when you were writing this, had the war in Ukraine broken out yet? And has that changed your views? Yeah, 100%. Great question. So we, I, I, I submitted the final, final manuscript, I'm going to say March 1. So in the intro or the acknowledgments, there's like a couple, there's like a page on the Russia invasion of Ukraine. But in the last, if you said, how has Dan spent his time since June 1 or May 1 of 2022? And, and you and Scotty, you and I had this discussion offline that I've been doing a lot. We've been running a Ukraine Reconstruction Commission at CSIS. And yeah. so we convened a high level global commission looking at the rebuilding of Ukraine. So some Ukrainians, some Americans, some Europeans, someone from Canada. We have Margaret Biggs, the former head of Canadian CETA. 
So I know your audience and I know Canada. So 4%, someone can quibble with me and send me a, a mean email, but I believe it's 4% of the population of Canada is Ukrainian Canadian. Some people say, no, it's 5%. Some people say it's 2.3, but I- This is Canusa Street. Everybody is very friendly in our neighborhood, Dan. Don't you worry. This is Canusa Street, so it'll be nice. But am I right, Scotty? Isn't it like 4% of the, the population of Canada is Ukrainian-Canadian? There's, there's a diaspora there, and, and there is a political connection and a, that's, that's, that's really good. But let's, okay, so let's get back to the book. What's your premise? And what's your hypothesis? Because I, I have a few thoughts, too. And maybe we might let Chris get a word in. We'll see. But anyway, tell us the premise of the book. <laughs> so the premise of the book is if we're in this new age of great power competition with China and Russia, I, I would argue most of this competition is going to be non-military. And so it's going to be things like tech, vaccines, leadership in the UN system, things like infrastructure, things like trade, things like values. So it's going to be what about what about foreign aid? Yeah, foreign aid's a part of foreign aid's a vector for all of these other things. Like provide uh -huh. all so vector so foreign aid's a, a vector for that. I do think there's a competition for sort of models of progress and development. So 20 years ago, you'd have said, oh well, there's only kind of there's like market democracies. So on hand today, it's like no, you can have you know. So the Chinese are saying that. So okay, so let me just be clear. When I say China, I'm talking about the Chinese Communist Party. And when I say Russia, I'm talking about Vladimir Putin's murderous regime. Right. Governments, not the people. Yeah, we get it. That's a good clarification. Yep. So please don't have anyone. I know Jiggy says Canusa Street, everyone's nice, but please don't send me like mean emails like, Rundy, you're overgeneralizing. So my point. <laughs> you can take it. You've apparently had some nasty grams in your life, but I know you can take it, my friend. So I'll just say that there's. There's, so I think the I do think there's an additional point, which is like we have to engage the Chinese people and we have to engage, I'd say more controversially, the Russian people. We need to find ways of engaging dissident groups and human rights groups and marginalized communities in these countries and supporting them. So I think but most of this competition ain't going to play out in China, ain't going to play out in Russia, it's going to play out in the global south. And so if soft power is kind of an imprecise term, the global south is kind of an imprecise term, too. But it's mostly going to play. And my thesis is that we need a non a strategy with non-military elements in it. And so what's our strategy for the global south that involves non-military? So a big chunk of it, like 60 or 60 percent, is a foreign aid stuff. And then there's like other stuff that I'm going to describe as foreign aid adjacent. And then I'm going to describe it as stuff that ain't necessarily foreign aid adjacent, but is like not it's not. It's not howitzers, attackums, and night vision goggles. And it ain't intelligence either. So it's it could be things like people-to-people -people diplomacy. It could be things like I have a chapter in international education and training. So when I, I ask two questions when I go to a developing country. Like, where do you buy your weapons from? Right. And so Scotty, you're you're and, and Chris, your audience will appreciate this, that you know, Canada and the United States are defense have a defense industrial base. So if they buy a weapons system, they're by making a 40-year commitment to a country, training yeah. and experts and everything else. Okay. The second thing I ask is, where do you send your elites to go study? So if they say to me, I'm sending my elites to Beijing, I get nervous. If they say, well, a lot of our people go to Moscow, that ain't so great either. If they say they're going to Canada, I think that's awesome. I'd, I'd like them to come to the U.S., 
but I'm super duper happy if they're in Australia or Canada or Japan or the UK or the United States. Like if they're studying in an OECD country, that's thumbs up. That's good. And, but we need to be more intentional about stuff like that too, because if you watch China, they're like, if you, there are a lot of people going on China's dime from developing countries to study in Beijing. So what that means when they become finance minister of Benin, they're going to have Beijing on the speed dial, not Boston on the speed dial. And I forget what it's called and what's the Wall Street called in, in Canada. Bay Street. Right. Just it, to keep with your alliteration, right. since the, apparently today. Right. We want Bay Street. We want Bay Street on the speed dial. This is brought to you by the letter B. This is brought to you by the letter B. <laughs> Dan, I'm going to use that as a pivot because another thing that was brought to you or starts with the letter B is Bound to Lead, which was Joseph Nye's book where he introduced this soft power concept. That's 30 years ago. But I still think a lot of listeners have sort of heard the term vaguely. Can you talk a little bit about soft power and, and, and particularly how that concept works for you? Because there was some criticism that Joe Nye was talking about hegemony and there were different things that he meant by it. How, what does it mean to you and how do you think of it? Okay, so I think soft power is an imprecise term and has me different meanings to different people. So Joe Nye's uh, definition is about using your influence to get countries to do things that you want them to do like through persuasion it's it's something like that right it's it's more than that but that's kind of like the bumper sticker i i'm using an imprecise term term to talk about I, i'm interested in that but i'm interested in things like what scotty was saying earlier like foreign aid things adjacent to foreign aid things like so i'm thinking about everything other than like night vision goggles attackums leopard tanks and tap and telephones so I'm interested mm -hmm. in sort of like various forms of our influence and power. Some of it's not in the government. So some of it's higher education. Some of it's about our tech leadership. Some of it's about our values. Some of that we lead with that, governments lead with that. Some of it's about supporting democracy and human rights and good governance. That's a foreign aid thing, but it's also sort of a little bit seen as a little bit apart. Some of it's about how do we lead in the multilateral system? I mean, there've been a series of things my, the story I tell, here's my anecdote for people like, okay, like what's Dan trying to get up? So you all sat in, I'll tell you two stories to kind of get a sense of this. So, so I sat, I sat in my basement for a year during COVID and you all did too. And your listeners did all too. And I'm super unhappy about it. And I know there were a lot of horrible things that happened, but I was really happy when I got my Pfizer and Moderna shots, but there was only so many Pfizer and Moderna shots to go around. And so what we told developing countries was, hey, we're going to give you this buzzer and we're going to buzz you when the good vaccines are ready. Like if you've been to like TGI Fridays, they give you that buzzer when they tell you your table's ready. So we gave them all like buzzers and we said, hey, developing country X, hang in there. We'll get to you in about six months, but just tough it out. Right. So when we got the Pfizer thing. Right. So so if you were a developing country, would you be like, OK, I got my buzzer or I've got China with something called Sinovac, or I've got Russia with something called Sputnik. Your listeners all know what I'm talking about. So one of the stories is the Dominican Republic, which is an ally of the United States, had made two, there was a rumor that they were gonna recognize Taiwan, and then COVID happened. And then there also was a rumor that they were gonna like kick Huawei out of their telecom system. I know this is something your Canadian listeners will know a lot about, right? So. So we gave them the TGI Fridays treatment with the vaccines. We said, hang in there, we'll give you the buzzer. 
that's not useful. So if you're the DR, you either have the TGI Fridays treatment or Sinovac. So the Chinese come with a 747 with vaccines on the tarmac saying, hey, we've got these vaccines here. We've heard this rumor that you're going to recognize Taiwan. You wouldn't want to do something that dumb, would you? Oh, no, no, we're not going to do that. We've also, we've got this very fine firm called Huawei. We think you ought to take a really good look at them and, you know, have them in your telecom system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We think we ought to do that too. So those things happened. So they got crappy vaccines. So they have the power to fill voids that the West leaves today. That's the message. That's the key gist of the book. And they were they were grateful for those vaccines. I mean, you say it's crappy vaccines, but but to your point, in a connected world, if you've got a state-owned enterprise that can say, we're going to connect you cheaply, that's Huawei. That's the Chinese state-owned enterprise or state-owned adjacent, yeah. to use your terminology. And if you're waiting for vaccines, you, you're right. You want them quickly as you can. Your economy depends on it. So, so, so China's influence in the global South has been growing, and you give two really good examples, but China has been doing this for years. And I think um, perhaps some evidence of its influence was the vote, are the votes in the UN on things like supporting Ukraine. Because in Canada and the United States, I think we take it as a given that of course we're gonna support Ukraine um, in this terrible battle that it's in with Russia. But there are plenty of countries around the world that are kind of sitting it out, right? They're kind of sitting it out because they're going, well, we're getting a lot of benefit from China. Anyway, so let's let's take a pause. And after the break, let's come back and talk more about the American imperative, the American imperative, the American imperative, Daniel Run's book, and, and what it really means for the future. What American soft power are we waning? Are we increasing? And what does that mean? So let's take a quick break. Are you red, white, and blue, or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-U.S. relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. This is Chris Sands, and I'm here with the great Scotty Greenwood. And we're talking today to Dan Rundy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, who's the author of a new book, The American Imperative, uh, all about development and the challenges ahead of us. Scotty, do you want to ask a question or can I get one in, just sneak one in there? <laughs> I think I have to yield to you, my friend, since Dan and I will continue talking unabated unless you jump in. So go for it. <laughs> well, fair enough. I didn't mean to be rude there. That's very un-Canadian. And even though I'm not, I'm Canadian adjacent as an American, but maybe uh, you're a wannabe Canadian. I don't know. You never know. There's a special episode, a very special episode of Canusa Street coming up on that, I'm sure. But Dan, in, in looking at the book, one of the things that struck me, and I think it's chapter three, where you talk a little bit about the, 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 the post-war order and the way in which governments contributed to development. And you talk about Canada there. And I was reading it thinking, well, yes, after World War II, the U.S. led and a lot of other countries were, including Canada, were just help, glad to have that leadership. But can 
can great power rivalry, at least on the American side, be a team sport? If we're investing in development and we're trying to find ways to spread you know, good things to our friendly partners, you talked about Canada taking university students, but is there room for the United States and Canada to have a coordinated approach to the IDB or increasing World Bank funding or, or basically using them as an ally in the multilateral system, which they might not have been prepared to do quite as much in 45, but today I, I think maybe they've matured to the point where they could be a key ally. But maybe that's my hypothesis. What do you think? The U.S. has never been able to achieve anything of any significance on its own. Like we weren't able to do it in the Cold War. We weren't able to do it in World War II. We weren't able to do it in World War One. So obviously Canada was a key partner in World War One, World War Two. Korea. I think they were in Korea. They were in Afghanistan as well. So they've been a, a key support, security partner in many, most of the major challenges the U.S. has faced in the last hundred, in the last hundred years. And the most, you know, they've been a great partner. So if I think about the, the other part, the other issues, it's whether it's values, certainly, you know, Canada is an obvious partner. If I think about coordinating and working together on the multilateral system, whether it's about Insurance. So Canada and the United States have a particular interest in the where the Inter-American Development Bank goes, which is an important institution for the region. Uh, Canada and the United States have important equities as it relates to the Caribbean or Central America. These are area, they also, I think, there's also, I think, a significant interest with the, I think there's shared interest in what happens in Ukraine. I think that Canada... I think just we have a conference at CSIS on Ukraine reconstruction in the second half of September. So people should check that out on our website. But for folks listening to this, to this podcast, but I would say that, you know, so there's a series of areas, non-military areas where the U.S. and Canada need to work together. I also would argue, I did a paper five or six years ago looking at ensuring that English, I know it, Canadians bilingual, Canada's bilingual, but I would just say that we, I actually think making sure that we strengthen the use of English around the world is an Anglosphere and Anglophone common project and actually an important soft power project. I know that may be a little uncomfortable for some folks in the U.S., but I would say that like English as a second language is an important, and the, the State Department has that as a function that it does. But I don't think the U.S. on its own can do that. I think it's something we should coordinate with Canada on, the Australians on, the Brits, the New Zealand, the Kiwis, and maybe others. So I think that there's a whole series of things where we need to work together with Canada in particular and our other allies. And so in the non-military space. So there's absolutely the U.S. on its own can't do any of this. We need help. And so I, I wrote this book primarily for an American audience because my concern has been... So I think it's gotten kind of a, you know, it kind of depends on the foreign audience. It kind of gets kind of like, it kind of has a little bit of a dissonant tone because I'm pretty much making the case where like the U.S. needs to lead again. Some people don't want to hear that outside the U.S., but I would just say that um, there's been a temptation for the United States to take a timeout on global leadership. Now, that's different than saying I have, yeah, I've done multi, I've done more than, you know, I've done 60 book talks in the United States. I've yet to have anyone in the United States say to me, I am super cool with the idea of having the Chinese Communist Party set the rule system for me. That sounds awesome. I haven't met anybody yet that says that. And if you did like a thought exercise, like I care about environmental stewardship or religious freedom or freedom of value, you know, freedom of movement or freedom to choose what I want to do with my life, 
or anything that you hold dear? Like, do you, does anyone on this podcast believe that the Chinese Communist Party is a better steward than the... Yeah, but let me put let me push on that, Dan, for one second, because when you talk to Americans, they do say, I don't think we should have to be the policeman for the world. I don't think we should. You know, why are we spending all this money on, you know, other people's schools and infrastructure when ours is breaking down? We need to focus here at home. So what's your what's your response to that? I would argue that there's a number of things that where we're interconnected with the world. And so, like, if I had said to people I'm really worried about how we talk about these things also matters. I'm really worried about health system strengthening in West Africa. People's eyes would glaze over. But if you said, hey, do you want, you know, COVID or, you know, some funny name disease showing up in Newark Airport? You say, no, I don't want that. Right. So some of it's about like our, we need, we've always used our non-mil, our engagement with the world as a form of enlightened self-interest. And we need to kind of reframe our enlightened self-interest. And this book is about making the case that either we are going to fill these gaps or China and their sidekick Russia are going to fill these gaps. And we can pick. And I just think that the consequences of us not allowing China and Russia to fill these gaps is very high and that we just haven't kind of fully done the thought exercise of like, are we prepared to do that? And what I found with the Trump administration and even kind of engagement skeptical people is that doesn't mean we have to engage in every single issue and it doesn't mean we have to solve every single global problem. But it does mean that we have to make some, one of the lenses that we're gonna look at the world is, is that if we don't do this, are we prepared to let China fill? Now, if China wants to lead, so let me just give you an example. If China wants to lead some fourth tier UN agency that no one's ever heard of, that doesn't set the global rules of the role or set global standards, I'm fine with that. If they wanna build a farm to market road in the middle of a, of a developing country I've never heard of, I'm fine with that. But if they want to build a dual use port that, that can house an air, one of their aircraft carriers, I think that's something we should worry about. If they're going to own the digital rails of the future through the unholy trinity of Huawei, ZTE, and Alipay, I think we ought to be concerned about that. And my point is it's not 1995 anymore, and it's not even 2005 or 2015 anymore when it comes to China's power and influence. And so they have an ability to fill voids that we leave behind. So so the same is like, I don't want to do this. I don't work on it. That's fine. But you need to understand that there are higher consequences to that than there used to be. And so that's the reason I wrote this book. Well, and, and Dan, I think that's the that comes through really strongly in the beginning of the book, because the first few chapters, you really are setting the scene. Why development is challenging now, what China's up to, how you see the U.S. needing to avoid creating those vacuums towards the end of the book you talk a little bit more about the tools that we could use, and it's an expansive view of the toolkits of development. You're not just talking about traditional aid and IMF loans, You're, you've got a much bigger vision there. And in particular, I, I, know, I love the title of chapter nine where it's just jobs, 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 economic growth from the inside out. Uh, Canada does come in there a little bit. You do mention Canada in chapter nine, I think a couple of times. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about jobs, why that's relevant here, and and where maybe the U.S. and Canada could be partnering on it. Right. So I think that a couple of things. One is I think Canada has a, a, a very good understanding that 95 percent or more of the world's of Canada's customers are outside of Canada. The United States often forgets that 95 percent of its customers are outside of the United States. I also think that 
we underappreciate in the United States, I know Canada has more sensitivity and appreciation for it, that North America as a whole is an important source of infrastructure, energy, food, tech, people, and nearshoring. So I think we need to first understand that like, have getting our act together and making sure that we're like our houses in order with our friends like Canada and Mexico is really, really important for the kind of the challenges that we face in the world. That is underestimated and underappreciated in Washington. I don't need to tell you, Chris. I don't need to tell you, Scotty. But your Canadian listeners, I'm sorry about that. We're, we sometimes forget. But I would just say, like, getting our act together in North America is really, really important for, like, the global challenge that we have in the world. I mean, nicely done pulling an apology to the Canadians. Like, that was a little bit of Fujitsu right there. Um, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to take another little break. And when we come back, I'm, I'm going to weave all these things together with a question about Top Gun Maverick. Ooh, awesome. What did Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King and President Woodrow Wilson have in common? Yes, they both led their countries during wartime, but they were also the only leaders of their countries to hold a PhD. At the Wilson Center's Canada Institute, we follow these academic civil servants to bring the public the best nonpartisan research and analysis. We're the only think tank in DC focused on this vital relationship. So in addition to the great repartee you get to hear on Canusa Street, head over to wilsoncenter.org to check out the Canada Institute's work and events. All right, welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. We're here with Dan Rundy from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, author of The American Imperative. And at, when we went to break, uh, Scotty had a question teed up. So over to you, Scotty. Thanks, Chris. So, so Dan, you know, here's a question that I hope will tie all these things together. And I'm really, you're not, I haven't previewed this with you, so this will be fun. So big, big movie this summer is Barbie. Barbie and Oppenheimer. Last summer it was Top Gun Maverick, which is, Top Gun was one of my favorites with Tom Cruise. I think, I hope a lot of people have seen it. And Maverick was great too. What's What makes me think about this and why I'm asking you about this is, you know, you're talking about non-military tools and movies, culture, Hollywood, which is currently on strike right now, is, is a big part, I think, of America's influence. So I want to I want to hear from you about culture, but also in case our readers aren't aware, there's another podcast I really like called Drum Tower. It's from The Economist, and it's it's with these really interesting journalists based in China and Taiwan. And they did a comparison on their on their podcast recently of Top Gun Maverick to essentially a Chinese version of the same thing. You know, the, there's a storyline where a young pilot, or in top in Maverick's case, it's an older pilot. But anyway, it's a Chinese pilot fighting fighting off bad guys, which in their case is the U.S. Anyway, so and you know, it's surging music, all like very similar themes. So that leads me to ask you about the role of culture, the role of arts and Hollywood and all of that into this notion of America's influence and, and the, the West influence over the global South or however you want to put it. How do you, how do you think about these questions of culture, Dan? So look, I think that we underestimated, I think a lot of people who do, so first of all, the, as a percentage of the GNP, if you look at like the creative economy, it's a much bigger part of an economy, depending on how you slice it, than people realize. 
It's not just films, but it's art, it's design, it's architecture. It can include, it can include the hospitality sector. So the creative economy is a big deal. The second thing I'd say is innovation-led economic growth is an important part of like getting out of just having a commodity-based economy. So Canada has significant commodities, but Canada is not a commodity based it's a service and has an innovation-led ec uh, economic growth economy as well. It's not a, it's not purely about agriculture and mining and energy. Those, those are important components of the Canadian economy. It's much more diversified. So if you want to have a diverse, you want to be, you want to escape what's called the middle income trap. You need to be able to have innovation-led economic growth, and you need like the creative economy. You need culture. So that's kind of like a development the kind of economic development statement. The second statement is I think we do underestimate the power of culture. Certainly in the Cold War, people talked about things like the, you know, the Beatles or blue jeans and other things that were seen as like really interesting or attractive to folks in, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. So I think that there's been an expect, you know, so for example, Ch uh, Taiwan has become a center of the creative economy. And if you're a filmmaker or you're kind of a little bit not, you know, not a, a in box, in the box, ordinary, you know, orthodox thinker in Asia, one of the places you want to move to is Taiwan because you can make films and you can do things. And so China, Taiwan has been a big proponent of having a creative economy as part of its development, but also as part of its kind of its calling card in terms of its identity. And then I'd say one of the things that's interesting about China is recently in the last 10 years, someone told me this story about a large media company where in their bank account, they had like $20 million in their bank account. And they're like, what the heck is this? Well, this is mainland China had to agree to start paying the license fees for the films that were as opposed to having them pirated because mainland China decided that they wanted to make their own film industry as part of kind of propaganda and identity and, and whatever. So... I've yet to watch a Chinese-made film. I'm sure, I, I suspect they're largely crap, but that's just me. I, I, well, do you watch, do you, are you on TikTok though? Like, where do you come down on that? I have, no, I'm not, you're not, I'm, not, I'm against that. Do you, know, against do you know about how influential it is though, when you think about I hate that thing. I hate that thing, yeah. <laughs> so, so TikTok bad, thumbs down. But I would say, what I would say is that we also, I think the other thing I would say about Hollywood is I have a critique about it. Like, when was the last time you saw a film where the Chinese Communist Party was the bad guy? Like, the la I mean, I think it's almost, almost never. Well, you, you, yeah. I mean, you think about, like, Hunt for Red October, and it's about Cold War yeah. Soviet, you know. You think about... Top Gun Maverick and it, it, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, so in the last 30 years, in the last 20 years, how many films have been made about the Chinese Communist Party being the bad guy? And I'm betting the answer is like one. Well, I'm not sure you need it. I mean, seems to me that they've been demonized quite a lot in the US. Anyway, let, let, me, let me pivot for a second. I wanna ask you and Chris a question about China and the US and Canada. And, and I'd love it if you don't mind both of you guys responding. And it relates, Dan, I think to your hypothesis here. So I, I think that the US and Canada, we each tell, we each have a narrative about ourselves that is either not true or it doesn't have to be true. And so the US, we tell ourselves that we're a superpower and we're always going to be a superpower. And when you think about the emergence of China as an example, your great power competition, maybe the US isn't correct. Maybe we're not, it's not inevitable that we would be a superpower. And I'd love for you guys both to respond to that. But similarly, Canada tells tells itself a narrative 
that they're never going to be, they're not a superpower and they're never going to be one. And I'm not sure why that would have to be true, because when you think about resources, food, influence, values, Canada's awfully important on the world stage. So can you, both of you perhaps talk about, talk about this in the context of the great power um, challenge that you talk about in your book, Dan? Dan, you first and then Chris. To say that Canada has an important role to play in a number on a number of different fronts, and sometimes I would say that as an American know, that knows Canada well, I'd like to see. I, I think sometimes I know Canada is really leaning in on Ukraine. They're doing a lot, and they're feeling like they're stretching. And so I think I know that they're doing a lot, and sometimes they not feel appreciated. But I want people who are listening to this call on the Zoom call or this podcast. You know, it is appreciated, and I think it's really important what Canada's doing in, in the context of Ukraine. I also think that Canada's got an important role to play in things, places like Haiti, has an important role to play in places like the Caribbean, and an important role to play in things like leadership in the Inter-American Development Bank, among other things. So we need Canada to stand up for human rights. They're an important voice in human rights, and they just, they're an important partner. So I do think there's some things they could do. I'd like to see them spend 2% of their GNP on defense. I know that's a little bit of a sore point, but I just think that's a thing. And we all just need to like, as adults, we need to like have some adulting about that and just say to our friends in Canada, like, come on, people, give me a break. So I think that's an important part of like being a partner. So as part of being a leader, you know, you got to pay the condo fees of leadership. And so being part of the pay, condo fees of leadership is paying your 2%. And part of the condo fees is about, you know, doing the right thing on some focus soft power. And they, they got the, the second part down. They need to, I think, need to do a little bit more on the defense side. Over. Okay. If you didn't get nasty grams earlier in the pod, you're definitely going to get them from that. But Chris, <laughs> Chris, why don't you jump in here? Well, I, I, I can't uh, say any of that better than uh, Dan Rundy. But maybe to link to your earlier question, I mean, I think sometimes the culture reflects something important about the way in which the U.S. sees itself in the world. And during the Cold War, you know, we had we had movies, uh, whether it was Dr. Strangelove or Rambo or uh, you name it, the, it was sort of or even the Superman movies back when Christopher Reeve was playing Superman, where it's sort of one against the world or one against, you know, an arch villain. What we've seen in the last few years really taking over Hollywood is much more of a team concept. I know Super Howard power uh, superhero teams, the Justice League or the Marvel Universe or whatever, where there's like an appreciation that they're big and small, everyone has different powers, but as a team, they can do more. And I think that's saying something important to the rising generation of Americans to conceive of leadership as being part of a team. And in that context, I think there's a lot of room for Canada that even Canada doesn't see coming that we are predisposed to build a team here, predisposed to lead with a team. And I think Canada would be very welcome. And, and maybe my last comment, which will probably get me hate mail, I think one of the big differences between Canada and the US is the US, and maybe it's that imperative that Dan is talking about, we don't wait to be invited. If we want to start a conversation, if we want to get something going, we just do it. Whereas I think sometimes Canada is looking for the invitation. You know, should we don't want to sort of muscle our way in here. Would we be welcome and how could we 
contribute and, and let us think about that. And what I love about Dan's book, what I hope some of our listeners take from this is that the U.S. really is open to having partners, having team members, and don't stand on ceremony. You're, you're very welcome. And I think as Canada thinks of the Canadian imperative, how do they want to contribute? Well, they get some great things out of them. Thanks for that, Chris. D- Dan, we're coming to the, the home stretch here of this podcast. It's flying by. We're talking about the American imperative, the American imperative, the American imperative book by Dan Rundy here in based here in Washington, D.C. Dan, I want to ask you just as a kind of a wrap-up question, what's at risk if the U.S. doesn't take your advice? In other words, you wrote this book for a reason. You saw a need for us to think about soft power. Um, What do you think is at stake here, especially if we don't heed your, your words? Okay, so... This is what I think, that I think that China can fill voids we leave behind. If we sit back and do nothing, they will take over the multilateral system. If we sit back and do nothing, they're going to be a far greater influence. Like, we need to have a better offer on hand. And if we, so there's a temptation that primarily the United States, among many people, to take a vacation from American leadership. This is wrong. And the reason it's one of the reasons is wrong is because we're going to see and among all the other reasons is we're going to cede the space to Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party in Russia. So the stakes are much higher than people realize. And so my example earlier about covid vaccines is just kind of the tip of the of a very enormous iceberg that we need to understand that across sectors, they have the ability to fill these voids. So it's it's particular, it's, you know. I wrote this book as a wake-up call and to begin a dialogue. Yeah, we'll edit that out. Dan, I think you've done us a great service. You you have issued a warning call. It's very timely, and I'm I'm hopeful that with this, uh, your 67th book review podcast, that it'll reach a Canadian audience, and they'll, they'll have a little sense of what kind of role Canada could have in the world. So thank you for bringing the book to us. Thanks for writing it in the first place. And, and thanks for, for being here today on, on Caduceus Street. Thanks a lot. Well, and thank you, thank you for sitting next to me on that flight from the Halifax International Security Forum, because that's a, I think that's what started a great friendship between us, even, even though sometimes we disagree on politics, which I know is shocking for people to hear that. Thanks, Scotty. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm grateful to you and Chris for having me today on Canusa Street to talk about my book, The American Imperative. There's a lot of controversial stuff packed into that conversation we had with Dan Rundy. I think it's always interesting to have a variety of points of view. I would imagine he's persona non grata in China. I'm glad he distinguished between the party and the people, though, because, you know, we can't just declare war on China from a cultural point of view or or obviously military. That would be that would be uh, really problematic. So I'm glad he clarified that. But woo, that was a little controversial, my friend. It was a little controversial. It reminds me of the formulation the State Department likes to use, which is we we disagree with the government, but we are great 
admirers or friends of the people. We see that with Iran or Russia trying to make sure that it's understood that we're really focused on the regime. And he he absolutely is. He loves Canada, loves the Canadian people. Had some maybe some encouragement and a little bit of a scolding for the Canadian government, but but it's clear he's a big fan of Canadians and and that made him feel very at home here on Canusa Street. Well, and interesting that he admits that his book is really written for a U.S. audience, right? Because, mm. you know, when he talks about things like more people in the world should speak English, I could I could just feel our friends in Quebec going, well, maybe more people in the world should speak French. You know, you think about the Francophonie, you think about the official language of the Olympic Games is French. I mean, you know, so anyway, I, 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 I'm really grateful for him being bold in his views and for us to have the, the form and the ability to probe a little bit. And you know what? If people disagree, that's a great thing about, you know, this world we live in is you can disagree without being disagreeable and you can, and you can explore ideas without fear of reprisal. That's a huge part of what, what Canada, the United States and Canusa Street are all about, I think. Yeah, and hopefully he won't get too many nasty grams in reprisal for his comments. But I, I want to underscore something you said there. I, I don't know that there's a foreign policy consensus in the U.S. right now, and it's really important for us to have this conversation. How much do we want to do? Can we spend what we need to spend? What? How do allies fit in? And Canadians, as much as Americans, want to see that conversation continue and develop towards some sort of consensus, because because that's the precondition of leadership. So, yeah, maybe this one is a little focused on the American audience. He's talking to his fellow citizens. But I think for Canadians, it's a preview of some of the things we're wrestling with. We haven't made our minds up yet. And if Canada wants in or has a role that it would like to inject itself into, they're welcome in that conversation, too. And I think that that was one of the nice messages that I picked up from Dan today. Well, that's right. And you're right, I think, Chris, that there isn't a broad understanding in the United States or Canada about about what foreign policy should be all about. But I have to say this Russian aggression in, U- in Ukraine has changed the game, you know, because yeah, it's, it's really uh, impossible to disagree with the idea that that tromping on someone's sovereignty and brutally, you know, invading and and the way they did is is a good idea. Like no nobody agrees with that. And so that that's changed. I think the consensus, you know, going forward will be uh at least you gotta respect borders. Let's, you know, start with that mm-hmm. um and and go from there. Absolutely. Well, it's, that, that is a lesson we've uh, failed to learn many times in our history. And I think it'll be good if we can bring that one back to the fore. Maybe not a Cold War. Maybe that f- won't fit at the end of the day. But definitely the idea that we, we have to stand up for values. And they are values that Canadians and Americans broadly share. That's always been the sort of foundation of our cooperation abroad, that we really do share things like, I think, a very firm rejection of the way Russia's treated Ukraine and and a number of other things too. Well, right, and not to get too too academic or too global here, but the you know, as we record this right now, this podcast, there's a lot happening for example in Israel with the Knesset, the Supreme Court, the Netanyahu coalition, what does it all mean? And so the the consequences of how we think about our own power, projection of power, sovereignty, it's its different depending on where you are in the world. And that's something Canada really understands as a, as a global country. I think Canada, some, you know, the U.S. thinks about itself all the time. And Canada, I think, thinks about the world more than we do. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on in the world. And, and maybe, maybe books like this one, The American Imperative, will help Americans think about our role. And Chris, here's a challenge. 
let's come up with whatever a recent book is about Canada and its role in the world. And let's have a book chat about that. That way we'll be fair and balanced. Oh, I hate to say that. That way we'll be, we'll be, we'll be promoting diverse views on Canusa Street. What do you think? I think it's a great idea. I would say we are promoting a conversation across the street. And, and it is not a back road. It is very much a thoroughfare for the world. And we're both connected to it. We're, we're not parochial on Canusa Street. We're thinking big. Thinking big. All right, my friend. Always great to see you. All right. Great to see you too. Thanks, Scotty. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.